Well, there are a lot of um, relationships in life that we attach ourselves to another person uh, for good or for bad. Um, parents are bound to their children, right? They love them unconditionally, regardless of what occurs. You're just kind of stuck in that love. Spouses um, bind themselves uh, together in the covenant of marriage. Members, we bind ourselves to one another in a church by way of a church covenant. So we attach ourselves to one another in different ways. Even, even silly ways where we attach ourselves to sports teams and um, for the good or bad, right? And in each of these scenarios, there are short-term struggles for long-term benefits, right? It's impossible to be both a good parent and a fair-weather parent. There's kind of a, an endurance and a diligence that's needed for those attachments to work. And God is perfectly holy. He has never had an evil thought or impulse. He only does what is right and is motivated by what is right all of the time. And this perfect God has attached his name to a people, whether it was the descendants of Abraham or the nation of Israel or now the church. And the people that he has adopted are not always great advertisements for what he is like. We can be disobedient children self-focused and embarrassing and stubborn and stumbling children of God. We are guilty of more than what we know. And he is patiently revealing those things to us. But it's safe to say, I think, that the bride of Christ is not always a trophy wife. And so we sit here in the need of his grace. My question this morning is, how does this work? How does a perfectly holy God attach himself in this kind of way to an unholy people like us? Can he do that? And how does God's good name not get tarnished by this arrangement? By, you think back of people, we looked at Saul and even David and us. Is God less glorious because he associates with us? You know, sometimes we find out that a person we're associating with is not the person we suspected, and so we distance ourselves from them. And so we think, is God just naive in this? You know, like, is he just overly optimistic? Well, no, he's not. John 2, 24 through 25 says this about Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. God knows the contours of the human heart far better than we do. So whether it's a parent to a child or a successful coach to a player who doesn't have much skill or um, maybe an expert who's walking with a novice or a veteran who's making time for the rookie or the popular kid who takes time for the new student, in any of those scenarios, the greater the gap between the one who exercises patience and the one who requires patience results in greater glory. 
The bigger that gap, the greater the glory, right? The more the patience that's required, the more glory is there. And so why does God associate with us in this saving way? Well, our point this morning is this. God's willingness to adopt and guide a disobedient people glorifies him. God's willingness to adopt and guide a disobedient people glorifies him. You know, this morning we're going to finish 1 Samuel, uh, and the book ends in an interesting way, drawing together a lot of the themes and the expectations of the book, but it ends on a low note, a, um, you could call it a narrative thud, is how things end in 1 Samuel. The disobedience of Saul it plays itself out in the book, uh, is about establishing a kingdom, of course, but it ends with a dead king and an embarrassed nation. But even though this chapter involves shame and humiliation, God's glory is revealed in it. Now, just by way of reminder, before we read it, the context um, for this story uh, is kind of like a cameraman who's panning back and forth between two different scenes, okay? Two subplots, one's David's and one is Saul's. In chapter 27, David flees from Saul by going to the Philistines. Do you remember that? But then the Philistines get ready to fight Israel, and then the camera pans over to chapter 28, which is Saul's side, and, and we see there that Saul sees this coming battle, and he's afraid, and so he does what he normally does, which is rely on his own instincts, and he panics, and he, he um, wants to hear from God, but kind of goes through the back door and through a medium and talks to the Samuel um, image in chapter 28. Then the camera pans back to David, who wants to fight with these Philistines, but uh, for his benefit and God's sovereignty, these pagan commanders say, no, you're not gonna, we're not going to allow you to fight your home turf. And so he goes home and finds the city of Ziklag destroyed and his pe- people captured. And so David catches up to them and saves the girl and gets the spoil and all this stuff. Um, and things are ending really well for David. They're looking really well for David in chapter 30. Last time, Tim had mentioned these kind of downward steps, things got worse and worse and worse, and then he trusts in the Lord, he does what Saul doesn't do, and then things change for him. Well, the camera is going to pan back now to Saul, and it's going to end the book in chapter 31. So let's go ahead and stand, if you're able, and conclude the book of 1 Samuel by the reading of chapter 31. Here's how the story ends. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. 
And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. You can be seated. I'm going to break from my normal pattern of um, talking through and teaching a text and then talking about the implications. And we're going, to, we're going to apply as we go through this text this morning. And what we're going to do is see the glory of God in the midst of con- even in the midst of consequences given to a disobedient king. God's glory is still there, and we want to notice that. So, our brief outline, uh, verses 1 through 6, we see the demise of Saul and God's word fulfilled. In verse 7, we see a defeated nation, God's warning fulfilled. And we also, in verses 8 through 11, see this shame of Israel spreading to now that even the Philistines see it. And we see God's tolerant mercy. Then we'll look at the end of this book and look at God's redemptive plan. But you'll notice that these are downward steps. So that by the time you get to the end of the chapter, it's just everything seems to be covered in shame. So first, let's look at the demise of Saul in verses 1 through 6. Um, you know, the final battle of this book between the Philistines and Israel just is a whooping from the start. You can kind of tell, right? It says the men of Israel fled. They fell slain. They retreated. If you look at the geography of the area, the battle begins and they're quickly overrun. And so they are running uh, away from them, but they're actually running uphill, uh, what they refer to as Mount Gilboa. And the camera man, if, you, if, if this was a movie scene, kind of starts further back and watches, you know, the thing, the, the tide shift and the Philistines start to overrun them. But then it, it, as it zooms in closer, it sees the sons of Saul fighting. And it notes there that these three sons, which aren't all of the sons, but the ones who were um, war uh, adept, uh, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua are all killed in battle. Now this matters because this is the lineage of Saul that's being extinguished in one fell swoop. But the camera doesn't just stop there, it keeps it's searching, right? It's searching for the main character. It's searching for Saul and where is he and what's going on with him. And so we we hear and the tension of the the text kind of ramps up in verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers, and they're getting closer and closer and closer. And he's apparently wounded in a way that, that he cannot recover from, and he knows that. And so we see the critical Saul wounded kind of writhing around on the ground in this scene of of sadness and pity. So what he tries to do is to, to take 
either the honorable or the easy road, because he knows what will happen if the Philistines get a hold of him and he's still alive. And so he asked his armor bearer, the armor bearer was the person who was supposed to be most loyal uh, to uh, the king or to the one they were protecting, to kill him. There's enough. But he won't. And he's weak and he's fearful. And so Saul's sad state is made even more obvious when even the person who is most loyal to him, even in this critical moment where he just, he needs to be put out of his misery, the young man won't. And so Saul, true to form, does things his own way. And he falls on his sword and he kills himself. As does his armor bearer. And just like that, this king who is so vulnerable for so much of this book is finally dead. Now, what a depressing end to the book, you think. But how do we see the glory of God in the demise of Saul, even? Let's notice a few things. Look at verse 6. When a text goes out of its way to describe something and it just kind of catches your eye or it seems um, odd or out of the ordinary, maybe I should say. But verse 6 says, Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And why would it note that? Well, it's because a few chapters before, and it was read earlier in chapter 28, uh, earlier in the service, we heard it. In verses 16 through 19, where Saul is drumming up um, this figure of Samuel, in 28.16, it says, And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? And then the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. You can imagine Samuel, like, I've, we've covered this before. <laughs> I mean, Saul's trying, like, he's clicking refresh to try to make the news change, right? And it's not changing. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, and you did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me, dead Samuel. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So here we see this, we see actually the glory of God in chapter 31 because God fulfills his word. It comes to pass in exactly the way that Samuel says. We've seen this earlier in the book of 1 Samuel with Eli. Do you remember him? And how God promised that his sons would die on the same day. And they do and he finds it out and he falls backward and dies himself. Earlier in 26, verse 10, it says, And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, referring to Saul, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David believed that God was sovereign over the life of Saul. And Samuel even laid out how it was going to happen. And sure enough, God does what he said he would do. He tears the kingdom from Saul, and he does this in dramatic fashion in one fell swoop in one battlefield. And so, 
In the same way that we, God is faithful to his promises, God is faithful to his threats as well. He is righteous. He says what is true. His word proves true. He is not bluffing. He does not give empty threats. And so when God says that the kingdom is going to be torn away, it's going to be torn away. It doesn't matter all the schemes that Saul can come up with. And so God is glorified even by giving consequences to the disobedient. God is revealed as a truth teller. He's a just judge. He's righteous in all his ways. He does not lie to us. And sometimes we see the consistency of God's righteousness when he delivers on judgment that he promises. We can see that in both ways, in fulfilling promises and also in delivering judgment. Now, why does this matter to us? How might we apply this to our lives? It means that God doesn't make false threats. And he doesn't speak in a kind of uncertainty. Our God and Father, he tells the truth. And if you think about it, that really matters. <laughs> that you can rely on what God says. Because you think about what's one of the tactics that Satan uses to, to get us off track. Isn't it to question what God says? Did he really say that? Does God really mean that? He tries to make us deaf to the word of God, to exalt our own opinions and our own thoughts above his. He calls into question God's words and doubts them and puts shadow on them. He does this because he knows that to call into question the words of God is to call into question the character of God. Those things are one and the same. Now, it's easier for us to doubt maybe a promise or a verse, but what's happening in that moment is we're actually doubting the character of God and the, the, the righteousness of God. And so God's word and God's character are, are married so what does this mean for us? When God warns you, listen. When God assures you, believe. When God convicts you, respond. When God persuades you, hold fast. When God encourages you, accept. When God instructs you, adopt his thinking. You see, we see God's worth revealed in what he says, whether it's to judge and bring consequence or to save and bring deliverance. Either way, God always speaks the truth and he means what he says. And that reveals his glory, right? Because we don't always do that. Second, let's look at this defeated nation in verse 7. The ripple effects of Saul's sin continue to kind of find their way out. In verse 7, it says, And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. We've got to remember that Saul is more than just a, a random, stubborn guy. He's a king, right, of a nation. And there's consequences for those who are leading on their people if they're disobedient to the Lord. And so when things go south for him, the nation feels it. And this is the, kind of the first sign of that in terms of the implications for Israel as the Philistines take over. Notice that the people surrounding the area see what's going on and they have to forsake their livelihoods and their homes. They've got to flee and run away. They don't want to stick around and get harassed by this foreign power. 
they, they run for it. Now, I want to put yourself in the place of one of these, these Israelites who are fleeing. You know, I wonder if some of them thought, you remember back when we were talking about needing a king? You remember the reasoning that we had when we, when we wanted one so badly? Israel is, are not hapless victims in this. This was their idea, right? Remember when they approached uh, Samuel to, for, to get a king, um, the people approached him in chapter 8, verses 4 through 7, and they, it, they said this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Ironically, in 8.19, it continues, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Why do we want a king? Because we need someone to go and fight for us. And what happens? It even says, we want a king because we need someone to get at the Philistines. And now they're fleeing their homes because they didn't heed God's warning. They didn't listen. They didn't realize that the rejection and and ignoring the warning of the prophet will mean consequence for them. The problem with having a king is that you can put your hope in a person and not God. This is in contrast to David. You remember when he fought Goliath? David says that he'll kill Goliath, quote, in 1747, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. It's true that David ran out to fight the battle, but it was with this understanding that this will only be successful if the Lord is fighting for me. And Saul did not have that understanding, and Israel did not have that understanding of Saul's role. And so here we find the nation bearing the consequences for a misplaced trust in a man. The king was a servant of God. It was not, he was not to be a replacement of God. And so what do we learn about this, about God's glory in this defeated nation scene? Well, we see that God warns for a reason. And sometimes consequences take a while, right? We see the father disciplining his son Israel in love. They believe that the battle was Saul's. And as a result, they lost their cities and their homes. And God does this and he warns us and shapes his people at the right time and in the right way and to the right proportion I just wonder if some of those Israelites thought, what were we thinking? The very reason we appointed this guy 
is exactly what he failed at. We put our trust in the wrong place. And they've got to sit at a distance and watch these Philistines take over their homes and their gardens and eat their food. Why did we put our trust in a king? We see the glory of God here because God warns for a reason, so we'd be remiss to ignore them. You know, and when you read this chapter, you think, well, how is God glorified in this disaster? But maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe we should be asking, how could this story have gone another way? Right? I mean, how is this supposed to end? <laughs> a people who reject God as king appoint a man who will rely on his own wits and his own strength. Like, you know how that story ends, Right? It would be far worse if, if that's what Israel does and that's what Saul does and then for the, for the picture to be this rosy picture where everything just kind of comes together. Because that's not how the world works. It's not how God designs for things to function. This is the end of self-reliance and not heeding the warnings of God. And that's what we see played out. So this is the second disgrace this national uh, rejection. And for us, it means just that we, we must heed the warnings of God. We have to listen to what he says. As our Father, he is wise to know when and how to do that. And we must be attentive to his warning. The third thing we see here is the spreading shame of Israel. In verses 8 through 10, I think it's bad enough that the king who's hired to fight the Philistines gets killed by the Philistines. It's bad enough that Israel has to flee their homes and their cities. But then the ultimate embarrassment happens. And the Philistines return to the field of battle to mop up and pillage and get what they can. And they find Saul and his sons. And they take Saul's head, they take his armor, and the bodies of his sons. And the language is just disturbing in verse 9. It says, So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout. This is almost like evangelism of the gospel in the New Testament. They sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Imagine that. The head of the people of God, the king, is being carried into a house of idols of the Philistines. It's dishonoring. This is rock bottom. This is disgrace. The bodies of Israel's king and his sons are pinned in a wall of a busy intersection on a road. I mean, what is happening here? Think about this. The glorious God of the universe is allowing this to occur. His matchless and glorious name, the creator of the universe, has attached his name to this people who thought a tall, good-looking guy could protect them to replace God as their king. And the nations that they're supposed to be distinct from now have the head of their king and are mocking him openly and, and using good news to spread. 
Turns out Israel isn't all that hard to defeat in the end. I mean, how, how, are, how is God tolerating this? How is Israel God's special people? How, how could Israel be God's choice of all the nations? How could Israel be the firstborn son that he carries and teaches to walk and grow? And this is their response to him. What is God doing, letting his good name be drugged through the mud in this way in the temples of the Philistines? God doesn't throw in the towel for Israel. He has a purpose. He has a plan. And it's here we see the glory of God in his merciful toleration of his name being defamed. We see his tolerant mercy. See, he allows his people to be defeated and then his own name to be defamed for a season in order to bring about his plan. You see, he tolerates misrepresentation. He stomachs watching his chosen people choose someone else. He endures the humiliation of this for a season. Why? Because God is patient. That's why. God is patient in his correction. He temporarily tolerates this. He doesn't deserve this. But we see God's commitment to his people in his willingness to let them fail. In his, his unrelenting desire to leave his name attached to Israel even when she is disobedient. And you think, well, how many strikes does Israel get? You know? <laughs> like, how long is this going to be tolerated? It's not that he doesn't allow judgment or consequence to come. Obviously, he does. But when you start adding up all the strikes that Israel has throughout the Old Testament, it just baffles you. I mean, why doesn't God just pick a different one? I mean, honestly, like, right? I mean, that's what we do, right? You buy something from the store and you, it, it breaks on you and it doesn't work well and you try to fix it and you work with it for a little bit. But there is a point where you're like, the 20 bucks, I, I would rather go without, Right? How many strikes are they going to get? Why not begin a new and improved Israel? Well, it's because of God's tolerant mercy. He keeps his name attached to them. When he could consume them in a second. Now why does this matter to us? It matters because it proves the invincibility of God's covenant commitment. That he doesn't quit on his people. He doesn't forsake them or sell them or disown them. They repent. They need to learn. They need to grow. Yes. But there is nothing stronger than God's commitment to his people. Nothing. And so if you're a Christian, God has permanently assigned his name to yours. You were adopted and secured by the blood of his divine son. And we need that assurance, don't we? Because we are Saul, and we are David, and we are Israel, are we not? And to know that God's commitment, his attachment to his people, is not based on the responsiveness of his people. But it is based on something that he has done, that he has accomplished, that he has secured in the new covenant. It's grounds for all kinds of freedom that you and I are offered. 
It doesn't mean this frees us to do with what we want. But it does free us to love Him and to obey Him and to trust Him and to believe His Word. That we are His people. And that He won't disown us. There are times still that our little, little daughter Ella will think that we've forgotten about her. We're out and about doing something and... Um, you know, with four kids, you kind of have to count like, occasionally. <laughs> okay, are we all here? <laughs> like, what's going on? And, and there's these, just these brief little moments where I think in her heart of hearts, she wonders, you know, if, if we're thinking of her in the same way or not. And of course, as parents, it's the most, like, revolting idea in the world to think. And there is, there's absolutely no distinction, and I mean, she's ours. And we know that, and everyone knows that. And, and yet there's these moments where these little cracks of insecurity creep up in her. And I wonder if that's not comparable to what it's like to, to walk with God, right? Where we, we feel like we're with him and he's with us. And but then these little times, these little moments where you're just, oh, is he really near me? Does he really, does he really care? Is he still com- as committed as, as he was? When we read chapters like 1 Samuel 31 and God doesn't throw in the towel, we think he's got to be committed. So, though God's name suffers dishonor and though Saul and Israel and we contribute to that, his covenant lasts. I mean, imagine the feeling of these Philistines and what they will feel when they face the God whose king they did this too, right? It's not that these misconceptions about God will will never be corrected. They will. Everyone will know. Everyone. And it's just a matter of time. God will not be mocked in the long term. And because this great reversal is coming, we too can suffer misunderstanding and shame. Our names can be drugged through the mud for Jesus' sake, and they will come out clean, God willing, in judgment. Our assurance of God's judgment allows us to endure more and say less and embrace suffering and cultural shame for the one who is present with us in those moments. It's interesting that these men of Jabesh-Gilead do what they do. You'll notice in verse 11... These men who, if you read earlier, in chapter 11, this was the time when Saul was empowered by the Spirit of God to deliver people when they were really in a bind. I mean, they were toast. And so they sent out messengers to everyone, help us, help us, help us. And Saul and Israel responded, and they came and traveled through the night and took care of business and delivered these guys from Jabesh Gilead. And that act of salvation is what really motivated them uh, to take this great risk of sparing the shred of dignity that they could have left for Israel's king, and they went and took the bodies back. When you see that they burned them, you might think, well, that's disrespectful, and it normally was in this culture, but under the circumstances, it was actually done to preserve the dignity of these men. These bones were later taken and buried later on in the Old Testament in, in, uh, by David, actually, Uh, and sparing some of the dignity of Saul. Because that former act of salvation 
is what um, spurned their valiant uh, and courageous attempt. And so there's a connection between experiencing deliverance of God uh, and intervening to defend his glory and the part of his people. Lastly, look at the end of 1 Samuel. Like we said, ironically, the book that is intended to appoint us God's king, and it's all about the king, king, king. And here we end with God's king dead on a battlefield. But we know that the hope of this book is not tied to Saul, right? We know just from the context of the book that God's people are leaning forward looking for who is to come after Saul. And it says over and over again in this book that that is King David. So 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 to 14 says, And then Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded for you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And you can find it again in chapter 15, verses 26 to 29, and other places where David is the one who's in line. And God, in his sovereign plan, had another man ready, right? And the reader can take comfort in this and know this, because it says over and over again, David's going to follow Saul. But what did the average Israelite know, I wonder? The people in these cities who fled, who just watched uh, the Philistines come in and kill Saul and his sons. Most of them probably just saw their king die and maybe the hopes of their remaining nation with it. And so this helps us to remember this because in these kind of situations, it's helpful to know that God is always working. He's always aware of timetables. He's always aware of what's next. He knows what's going to happen with Saul and David's the guy who's ready. And we see the glory of God in his sovereign redemptive plan, that God is at work and he isn't bound to the obedience of one man. You know, you end of 1 Samuel and you kind of want to peek into 2 Samuel. You think, where does it go from here? And it just picks right up. And David, of course, is anointed king. He's led to leads Israel to these glory days that were not experienced before. But the problem is, is that David acts like his, his father too, right? He has his moments where he relies on his wits and he puts the nation at risk and he brings shame on God in a lot of different ways. Now, David was a drastic improvement to Saul. We'll all acknowledge that, right? But at the end of his life, we're still leaning forward to see who's next. And this just happens again and again and again. And Solomon comes, right? And his kingdom is really impressive. Everything's coated in gold, and yet you just suspect this thing is not going to last. And so we look at the trajectories and every Israelite king who would follow, and every Israelite leader or king who was before, are all doing something to add dishonor to the name of God. And they're all not this king who is going to perfectly follow, and they're all testimonies to the patience of God. And after a while you think, well, how long can we wait? Like, who's going to do it? How long are we going to look forward, Right? And the truth is, God has appointed a king, one who has perfectly represented him, one who will perfectly follow him. And this king obeys personally. He leads God's people perfectly. 
and he only and always brings honor and glory to God. This king is Jesus. He is the one we are looking to. And there are no traces of Saul in that Savior. None. He is the one. The one we're looking for. The one who can pull this off. And what's crazy is that he's the uniquely qualified one, and yet he is the one who comes to die for the sake of people like Saul and David and us. He is the explanation for God's attachment to his people. He is the reason why it sticks. He's the ground of the covenant, the cement of our adoption. He's the certainty of our salvation. God's willingness to be embarrassed or shamed in the short term is proven in the cross of Jesus Christ, is it not? I mean, we thought the humiliation of 1 Samuel 31 was bad. Consider the humiliation that is experienced in the death of the Son of God. The lengths to which God will go to save his people. It's astounding. God is at work in disaster, people. Trust me, 1 Samuel 31, the cross of Christ. These horrible scenes of death and destruction and injustice, and God is orchestrating them and using them. And so even in humiliation for his people, God is still accomplishing exactly what he wants. So when difficulty strikes and disaster occurs, when God's people fail, when you fail to represent God well, remember that God's redemptive plan cannot be thwarted. It only moves forward. And his king Jesus, he's coming. The king that we need is coming. So what did we learn this morning? We learned that God's willingness to adopt and guide a disobedient people, even that glorifies him. We can see his glory in that. We see his glory in his word being fulfilled, in his warnings being legitimate, in his tolerant mercy sticking with his people, and in his sovereign plan, which, can, which can't be sidetracked, even by his own people's disobedience. Do you see the glory of God in 1 Samuel 31? If you can see it there, then it's my prayer and hope that you can see the glory of God in the midst of disaster, in the midst of difficulty and struggle in your own life. It's everywhere. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for texts like this that at first glance we read and we just leave maybe discouraged by or thinking that the plan is sidetracked. But God, we thank you that your glory is revealed even in the midst of difficulty and disobedience and consequences and heartache. God, you are the same God on those kinds of battlefields. And we thank you for that. Thank you that your word is true. Every day, every week, every year, no matter what, you say the truth. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for your warnings and the untold misery that they prevent 
in our lives, the ones that we listen to. Oh God, make us attentive to your warnings. God, we thank you for your tolerant mercy that is undeserved, that is just way beyond what we could imagine. Strike after strike after strike, God, in your covenant, your new covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus holds. And I pray, God, that you would help us to believe that, that your commitment to your people is real, that it's, it's as trustworthy as anything in this universe. And I pray that would inform how we hear your voice, it would inform how we view your fatherhood and your discipline and all the difficult things that you can bring our way. God, I pray that you would teach us to not doubt your commitment to us. And God, we thank you for your sovereignty, that your plan has every contingency laid out, that you know exactly how this is going to play out. And you will extract all the glory you can out of every decision every human being has ever made, and you will accomplish your will. And we know that because of a coming king. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the promise of his return. May it inform and infuse the way that we hope and the way that we view even our lives today. God, we know that we have rejected you as king in our sin. And God, thank you for going to great lengths to introduce us to your grace by the sending of your son. A king in a cradle of all things to come and live and die and rise God, thank you for your patient tolerance of us. Instruct us with these things. Help us to see your glory even in cloudy and rainy days. Help us to see your glory in disaster and in confusion. God, help us to, to treasure that and to treasure that insight most. We need your help to do that, God. We're, we're, we're not that way. So show us how we can do that uh, in our day-to-day lives, God, as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.